We swim in a weird pond filled with billionaires and incredibly you know, wealthy people who glorify working long hours and sacrificing everything for the business. And to feel like that's the only kind of life you're allowed to live and that the only yardstick by which you're measured is how fast your company is growing and how much money you've raised. I mean, A, it's not true, but it feels true when you're in it. You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Monday, so in this episode, you'll be hearing one of our favorite and most actionable talks from past conferences. Here we go. Sangram here. Welcome to the Flip Buffalo Podcast. This is fun. Um, Rand has been one of the persons that I've been following for a long period of time, and I'm super fortunate to have him on the podcast. As a matter of fact, we were speaking at two different conferences back to back. One was in Salt Lake City, where I had to rush and I couldn't meet Rand, and then at Inbound, where we were going to do a live podcast, but the timing was such that we couldn't really make it. So Rand was kind enough to lend more of his time. So we're doing a virtual podcast. So Rand, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Sanger. Good to be here. So, Rand, I mean, I I would add a little bit to your introduction, but I'd love for you to share a little bit more because I know you're on a next venture and a next uh, part of your journey as such. But obviously, the founder of Moz, you know, you've been very transparent in terms of how your journey has been as a founder. You wrote a book, Lost and Found, which is a really interesting book, especially as a founder, because I think I go through all of those emotions up and down all the time. And clearly now, you where you and Dermesh started Inbound, I've watched that video of you and Dermesh getting interviewed and talking about it. And I think very few people have probably seen that, but it's a really interesting one where you and Dermesh were talking about how you started Inbound and why you started. And then obviously you are now starting Spark Toro. So I mean, that's a little bit of like what I wanted to share, but is there anything else I could share more about you? No, no, I'm, uh, that covers it. After Moz doing this, uh, this new thing for the last few months, Spark Toro, and I'm excited to get that off the ground. And of course, the book came out this year. Yeah. It's been fun to do too. And still speaking at a lot of conferences and events and uh, doing some blogging and presentations. And I'm looking forward to our, our chat today. All right. So I know one of the things that I want to chat to you, and I've been really talking about this topic, is without a community, you are a commodity. And we started chatting about this right before we, we started to record it. I want to kind of go back to that a little bit and get your thoughts on like Moz and MozCon your whiteboard Friday series that you have done, like, I don't know how many episodes you have done of that. The fact that you started inbound with Dermesh and now it's such a big movement. I'm just curious to get your thoughts on like, do you believe that without a community, you are a commodity? Is that even a thing? I think that one of the ways to avoid being a commodity is certainly to build a community, but I don't think it's the only way. I think there are, you know, many competitive advantages and moats that you can build around a business I love community for a number of reasons. I think it's wonderful for marketing. I think it can be great for building loyalty and for getting folks you know, in, invested in and amplifying your work. But I've seen plenty of businesses be very successful you know, without a community. Google does not have a community, never had a community, right? And I think they're a very successful business and that, is, that can work just fine. Yeah. That, so what, what are the types of other modes that you would think that companies could have? Because I think it, it seems really hard, especially now to build a company and, and sustain it because you hear so many stories of like 
oh, the company went up and then, oh, wait a minute, what happened to that company? It's gone. Like, you know, we're, we're at, so what are the other types of modes that people mm-hmm. should think about? Yeah, I mean, I think that you can certainly look at, there are some companies who have moats built around their technology. There's data moats, right? People who have data that no one else can really get access to and no one will be able to get access to it at that scale. I think there's people who have moats largely built around brand and story. A lot of luxury good brands do that. A lot of the consumer packaged goods do that, certainly. We see moats built around political clout and influence and some that that sort of leverage that, you know, to prevent competitors coming to their space. It's called uh, TurboTax, right, in the U.S. Yeah. So they have, they basically lobby Congress to make sure that that the tax code stays very difficult, right, so that people like you and I would have an incredibly hard time potentially doing it. H&R Block does this as well, right? And as a result, right, they've built this kind of moat around their business using political lobbying and influence. There's plenty of other companies like that. Yeah. Uh, there's some that build their, you know, build their moats like Uber and Airbnb with sort of early adopter plus, you know, sort of they're the dominant, they become the dominant platform and yeah. then it becomes pretty difficult for other folks to compete. I mean, Uber is not quite an example of that because I think Lyft is a salient competitor for them. Absolutely, they are. But Airbnb is mostly running away with their market, I think, because they have that platform moat. Yeah. So yeah, there's. I'm sure we could we could probably brainstorm two dozen others. Yeah. Um, Community is a powerful one. It's also one that I think is accessible for a lot of people. It's really compelling for an early stage founder, especially if you are serving a lot of people in your network. Yeah. Right? So you know, if you and I go and we're trying to build a community around our business that's reaching web marketers, community is right. a wonderful way to go because we're both very plugged into that scene and we know a lot of people through that and. You know, personal relationships can drive a lot of that early stage and then that can, that can scale up. Yeah, that's great. Why, why did you and Dermay start inbound? Initially, you know, we were solved, scratching our own itch, right? We, we wanted this hacker news for marketers. We wanted a place where we could get together with a community of other marketers and discuss, you know, what's going on in marketing world and in the news and in the digital marketing space and... I think that that proved to be a very challenging. I think we over-engineered the solution to the problem yeah. uh, dramatically. I think HubSpot closed that down. What about six months ago? Yeah, and now it's called. And and Casey and I tried to solve that again with SparkToro Trending. So yeah. you know, we basically said, hey, maybe we can end around the problem of you know comments and manipulation and sort of all of this. Um, all the aspects of community that are very, very challenging to build and manage if, yeah. if you're not doing it all day, every day. And instead, just get the, hey, tell me what marketers are talking about. Tell me what's going on in the news. So I think we, we sort of solved half the problem that Inbound was trying to solve. But it's a, it's a difficult one. And marketers are manipulators, right? <laughs> we love to game stuff. We want to figure out how to get our stuff to the top. Yeah. So Inbound was always dealing with abuse and people trying to get to the top there. Yeah. So I want to chat more about your book because as I think there's a lot of interesting thoughts that, that you said and shared in the book already. But before that, I'd love for you to share what SparkToro is all about and uh, what, what is this new venture that you're all into. Yeah, so with SparkToro, one of the things that we, we realized when you're, when you're trying to build up, this is true for early stage companies, but it's true for companies at all stages or ideas at all stages, right? One of the problems that marketers have is that we... We need to go discover all the places 
the publications, the people that our audience pays attention to. Yeah. And then go do whatever kinds of marketing we're going to do in those places. But that first step is so challenging just to figure out where is my audience hanging out? Where are they spending time? Who are they listening to? What are they listening to? What are they watching? What are they reading and consuming? That's so difficult that many folks just throw their whole budget at Facebook and Google ads Mm. and let them deal with all the targeting. Right. And I think that kind of sucks, right? I think it sucks for a lot of publishers who get sort of left out of the conversation and left out of the you know, marketing opportunities that they can participate in, advertising opportunities they can participate in. And it sucks for a lot of marketers who then have to all compete with each other at Facebook and Google's prices, which yeah. are you know, close to where you're earning no ROI at all. Yeah, it's going up and up and up. Like I've been doing a lot of like testing around that and... Man, those Facebook ads that was so yeah. cheap are no longer cheap. Like, I, I would not no. cheap at all. But no, then, it's not like it was five, six years ago, right? Yeah. And I, um, but I think what's interesting about that is it does work because it is so targeted. Uh, so you're able to get your message in front of the right people. But I also see, like, wow, I don't know if this keeps going, if I can, my cost per acquisition is any more going to be valid in the future. So, what's the latest going on with Spocker? Like, what is specifically, how are you solving this problem? Yes, we're trying to help by essentially, you know, getting people better access to where their audience is paying attention, Mm. right? And that that is the the idea behind it is, you know, we we thought, gosh, there should just be a tool, a search engine where you type in like, I want to reach chefs on the West Coast. I want to reach architects in Minnesota. I'm trying to reach account-based marketers in Georgia, right? And we should be able to, and that, that search engine should be able to return to you, okay, Here's 22 podcasts that they listen to. Mm. Here's 15 YouTube channels they're all subscribing to. Here's 16 different events that they all go to. Here's 40 different blogs that they read. Here's the major media sites they consume. Yeah. And whatever it is, right? Here's the, here's the company websites that they're going to. And then, you, excellent. Okay, got it. Let me try and pitch to be a speaker at this conference. Let me try and see if I can get on that podcast. Let me go sponsor this event. Let me go get a guest editorial published on this blog or in this magazine. Uh, let me go see if I can create some data that a lot of these uh, journalists in this particular space will be interested in covering. Awesome. Yeah. But without that, without, without that initial audience intelligence data, you just can't, you can't do this effectively. And we were finding that for many businesses, especially when demographics, basic demographics aren't enough, yeah. just finding the places, you know, finding the places where chefs in Los Angeles pay attention is, yeah. how do you do that? Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you, wow. you, have to, you have to literally survey that. Right? There's two ways. You can, you can survey them and rely on them to be accurate enough, or you can go steal all their phones or <laughs> and then like log in and look at what they, what they read and pay attention to and bookmark and who they follow <laughs> and all that stuff. That's, that's the only way. Wow. And so we, you know, we figured with, there's enough public web and social data out there that we can get statistically significant sample sizes, kind of like election pollsters do, mm. right? And say like, hey, we don't know what every chef in Los Angeles reads, but we have 142 chefs in Los Angeles that we've identified and we have public data about them. Yeah. Let's see what they link to on their websites, follow on Twitter, pay attention to on LinkedIn, subscribe to on YouTube, you know, follow on Facebook, follow on Instagram, all those kinds of things. Yeah. And that, we will be able to determine what, you know, probably what most chefs pay attention to. Yeah. You know, as you talk through this, Rand, I feel like you're really talking through this idea that we have been simmering internally around fit, intent, and engagement, which is, you know, you talk about like, well, chefs in Los Angeles, well, you know, those are the fit, like those are the people you want to reach, right? 
I want to figure out their intent, like what kind of stuff they do over and over again that I want to create. Once I know that, I want to create engagement with them based on those. So I feel like you're literally talking to the audience that is very familiar with this concept, but you probably put it in more examples that I don't think we have done that before, but it's really a, a, an operationalizing this idea of fit intent and engagement in some way. Yeah, I think, I, I think the one missing piece from that, right? So fit, intent, engagement, and then channel, right? Yeah. What's the source? Like, where do you go do those things, right? So you, you know the audience, you know, it, once you know their intent and what you're trying to do with them, once you have the content or the message or the story that can engage them, now you got to go tell that story in the right places so you can actually reach them. Yeah. But that's exactly, exactly right. Love it. All right. So switching gear on your book, how does it feel to be an author? <laughs> yeah, huh. <laughs> I would say, I mean, it's a very different kind of thing, you know, writing a book than writing a blog post or, or doing yeah. marketing or building a company. I think it's much more artistic, right? There's still a lot of like, you know, serve the customer, serve the reader, serve the audience out there, but there's also a lot of art to it. And yeah. I love being able to flex that muscle. I think that in a less financially driven society, I would, <laughs> I would love to be an artist of some kind. Yeah. And that was fun and exciting for me. And so too, I, I think the biggest thing that's been positive about it is just seeing the reception, right? I, you know, I get emails from people who founder who, who read the chapter on venture and said like, oh my God, we were thinking about venture or angels. And this kind of made up our minds for us. Like we decided to go either path, right? But like this helped codify for us. This is what this experience is like. And, and this is you know, how this world operates and, and seeing your examples and numbers, like it finally broke through my head how the venture model works and how it doesn't. Yeah. Or, you know, people who read the chapter on uh, depression yeah. and, you know, reached out and said like, hey, this, it felt incredible to read this and to know that I'm not alone because yeah. I felt incredibly alone until I got to this chapter. Those are really powerful things, right? So hearing from, you know, I get a few dozen of these every day on, you know, Twitter and my email. Crazy. That's a great feeling. Yeah, I, I can only imagine, man, because as I read through and I haven't finished the book yet, I'm a co-founder myself and we went from three people to about 200 people now in the last three years. And I went from having marketing, sales, customer success, everybody kind of reporting into me to like being the chief evangelist because... Like there was just so much going on and we found that there are people that are smarter, better and stronger than I possibly can be in those specific roles, lead the teams. And my value proposition or the greater value for the organization was to be out there sharing and having these kind of conversations where we are actually making this as a real conversation. Like I'm more of an outside in, more of a perspective as opposed to just talking about our product all day long. And it took a while for me to kind of swallow that pill because as a founder, you feel like, you know, you can do it all, right? You can make it all happen. So I, when I read your book, the parts of it, and especially getting to the part of, not, not to the depression part, but yeah, it's a pretty lonely road and you walk on it and, and you always feel like you have to put a different face out there when you are talking to everybody else. And, and I think that's a very so I have a, like it's in the last year or so where I have like come to terms with myself like I don't have to do that I can yeah. be, it's okay to show that hey look I, this is how I feel this is what's bothering me or to take it take a week off and and like completely relax on that or think through it or so I, I think you opened up and you probably already realized this but you probably opened up a conversation for a lot of founders entrepreneurs and leaders of uh, of just being 
being okay to to give yourself that that time. Yeah, yeah. I think that being a founder, especially in the software and tech world, right, means comparing yourself to a certain standard, and yeah. means that we're you know, we swim in a weird pond filled with, you know, billionaires and incredibly, you know, wealthy people who glorify working long hours and sacrificing everything for the business. And to feel like that's the only kind of life you're allowed to live and that the only yardstick by which you're measured is how fast your company is growing and how much money you've raised. That's A, it's not true, but it feels true when you're in it. Yes, oh, absolutely. Um, I think and, I was listening to Dermesh's uh, keynote where he was comparing, you were you there at that keynote where he was talking about like in the first couple of years of a startup and he was comparing that to having a baby and saying that in the first couple of years, you don't know what you're doing. Sometimes you feel like you should sell it. And he just was talking about a startup at the same time. And, and I think I could hear in people's minds and stuff like, yeah, that's, uh, that's actually feels pretty, pretty true. But I think coming back to this, I love your thoughts on Moat. I want to kind of recap on some of the conversation we had. And I want, I would love for you to leave everybody who's listening to this podcast with a challenge. The majority of the people who listen to the podcast are in either marketing, sales, or leadership position. So if there's anything that's in your mind, like, hey, I want you to think about this one thing or challenge yourself to do that, I'd love for you to leave with that. So here are a couple of things that I want to highlight. Number one, I think you made a really interesting point that I've been struggling myself on the idea of what is the moat around your company. And you're right around the fact that, well, it doesn't have to be just one thing. And you look at like Salesforce having Dreamforce, inbound, HubSpot having inbound, Gainsight having Pulse or Termis having flip out. You just feel like that's the only way to be a leader in the market. Uh, but maybe it's not necessarily the only way. There are more examples of it. And as you outline technology, data, brand, and storytelling, you know, there are many more things to kind of really look around, like what is your moat and play to your strength. So I feel like that was a really good, good, good thing. The other part you, you said that I totally agree, which is like, look, marketers are always trying to game the system uh, in some ways, and we will ruin everything as soon as we figure out whatever that is that works. So uh, I'm a big believer on the idea of, you know, figure out a way to be more authentic in your conversations and the more you are, the better. So I think you just made that, that point more clear to me. I love that as we went through the examples of this chefs in Los Angeles, like this idea of fit and engagement, but you adding channel, which means engaging people on their terms is a big win and a big idea for more and more. It's not just about where we want to go. It's about where is your customer and where are they engaging and now engage on their terms, their times, their channels, all those things make sense. And then from a book perspective, I will ask everybody who's listening to the podcast, you know, go pick a copy of uh, Lost and Found by Rand because I think it does, even if you're not a founder, I think we all are in this journey where we're all expected to do more with less time and at the, the fastest speed. And somehow we start comparing ourselves to everybody that's around us in a way that's just not healthy. And I think Rand has done a really great job of just opening up his life as a case study to show how that could be pretty depressing. Uh, and, and, and that's just real and, and might save you some sleepless nights. So I feel like that's a, it's a really good book to look at it. But with that being said, Rand, we'd love for you to share a challenge to the community as to what is one thing that you want everybody to think about or want to take home from everything that we just talked about? Yeah, I think that broadly speaking, all of us sort of swim in the water of the culture around us, but we don't necessarily realize it. What I mean by that is 
if you're a founder in technology, uh, you are constantly comparing yourself to these billionaires and these fast-growing companies and the sort of the venture world. And if you are, you know, in the United States, you are constantly bombarded with, you know, this sort of cultural idea of political polarization. And if you are, you know, playing in the in the professional sports world, right? There's sort of this idea that you're either the greatest of all time or you're a nobody. And a lot of these sort of cultural ideas are are false, totally false. They're constructs created by you know, the stories that we pay attention to and the media that we're surrounded by and both nonfiction and fiction, right? The television shows and movies that we watch and the people that we idolize. And I think that anytime you are striving for something or you make, you make something a goal, you should ask yourself the hard question of, is this something that I want or do I only want this because of this water that I'm swimming in, mm. right? This culture that I'm surrounded by. Is there a way for me to break free of those shackles that, you know, the, the media environment and the environment of people around me and the stories around me, is there a way I can break free and forge my own path? Yeah. Think of something that I want to do exclusively for me or exclusively for, you know, the, the life that I want to lead and the things that I'm going to feel proud of having done 10, 20, 50 years from now. I think that those questions can be great to ask whether you're a marketer and you're thinking about your next job or your next campaign. They can be great if you're a founder thinking about your company. They can be great if you are you know, in a leadership role or considering a new one. All of that stuff. I love that. Play the long game for sure. So play it for you, right? Yeah, play you for you. You don't need to live up to somebody else's standard. Yeah. That's great, man. I, I think it's a great life lesson and a life advice. So thank you so much, Ryan. Super excited. We'll definitely meet sometime uh, soon face to face beyond just the virtual world because of our like small world that we all live in. So I can't wait for that. Look forward to it. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.